Introduction, Part 5 of Commentary on the Gospel of John, Book 12, by Cyril of Alexandria, translated by Reverend Thomas Randall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. And when he gave up the ghost, the veil of the temple was rent in twain, from the top to the bottom. The veil of the temple was of fine linen, let down to the floor of the center of the temple, and shrouding the inner portion thereof, and allowing only the high priest to enter into the innermost shrine. For it was not in the power of any one at will to penetrate into the interior with unwashen feet, and carelessly to gaze upon the holy of holies. How very necessary it was that this curtain should make this division, Paul shows us by his words in the epistle to the Hebrews. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the first, which is called the holy place, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden censer, and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot holding the manna, and the tables of the covenant, and Aaron's rod that budded. But into the first tabernacle, he says, the priest go in, accomplishing the services, but into the second, the high priest alone, once in the year, not without blood, which he offereth for himself, and for the errors of the people, the Holy Ghost this signifying, that the way into the holy place hath not yet been made manifest, while as the first tabernacle is yet standing. For there can be no question that a veil was let down at the very entrance of the temple, and so there came into his mind the first tabernacle, which he called holy, for no one could affirm that any part of the temple was not holy, or, if he did so, he would lie, for it was all holy. And after the first tabernacle came the veil which was betwixt, which is the second veil, separating the innermost portion, that is, the holy of holies. But, as the blessed Paul said, the Spirit signified, by figures and types, that the more fitting way in which the saints should tread had not yet been made manifest. For the people were still kept at a distance, and the first tabernacle was yet standing. For there had not, as yet, in fact, appeared unto men the manner of the life that Christ gave unto those who were called by the Spirit unto sanctification. And not yet had the mystery concerning him been made manifest, for the written commandment of the law was still in force. Therefore also the law placed the Jews in the outer court. For the dispensation of the law was, as it were, a porch and vestibule leading unto the teaching and life of the gospel. For the one is but a type, the other is the truth itself. The first tabernacle was, indeed, holy, for the law is holy, and the commandment righteous and good. But the innermost portion of the temple was the holy of holies. For though the men who partook of the righteousness of the law were holy, they became yet holier when they accepted faith that is in Christ, and were anointed with the Holy Spirit of God. The righteousness of faith, therefore, 
is greater than the righteousness of the law, and by faith we are far more abundantly sanctified. Therefore also the wise Paul says that he gladly and readily endured the loss of the righteousness that is of the law, that he might gain Christ, and might be found in him, not having a righteousness of mine own, even that which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ. And some fell backwards, and after running well for a time, were bewitched. And the Galatians were of this class, after pursuing the righteousness which is of faith, turning back to the commandment of the law, and recurring to the state of life shadowed forth by types and figures. And to these Paul administered the well-merited reproof, If ye receive circumcision, Christ will profit you nothing. Ye are severed from Christ, ye who would be justified by the law, ye are fallen away from grace. But, to bring our explanation of the passage to a good and proper conclusion, we will simply repeat that the veil of the temple was rent in twain, from the top to the bottom, to signify, as it were, that God was in the very act of revealing the Holy of Holies, and making the way into the inmost shrine open henceforth to those who believe on Christ. For the knowledge of the divine mysteries is now laid bare before us, no longer shrouded in the obscurity of the letter of the law, as it were a curtain, nor hidden by any covering from our quest, nor defended against the intrusion of the eye of the mind by types through which we could see but dimly. Rather are these mysteries now seen in simplicity of faith, yea, but few words suffice to explain them. For the word is nigh thee, says Paul, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, because if thou shalt say with thy mouth, Jesus is Lord, and shalt believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Herein is seen in its completeness the mystery of piety towards God. But while Christ had not as yet waged the conflict for our salvation, nor undergone the death of the flesh, the veil was still spread out, for the power of the commandment of the law still prevailed. But when the iniquitous Jews, in their presumption, had wreaked to the utmost their malice upon Christ, and he had given up the ghost for our sake, and the sufferings of Emmanuel were accomplished, the time had then come that the broad veil, that had so long been spread out, should from henceforth be rent asunder, that is, the protection of the letter of the law, and that the fair vision of the truth should lie bare and open before those who had been sanctified in Christ by faith. The veil was torn throughout, for what other meaning can be put upon the words, from the top to the bottom? And why was this? It was because the revelation of the message of salvation was not partial, but our enlightenment concerning the divine mysteries was perfected thereby. 
Therefore also the psalmist said unto God, in the person of his new people, The hidden secrets of thy wisdom hast thou revealed unto me. And, furthermore, the inspired Paul thus addresses believers on Christ. I thank my God always concerning you, for the grace which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything ye were enriched in him, in all utterance, and all wisdom, and all knowledge. The rending of the veil then, not in part, but entirely throughout, signified then that the worshippers of the Saviour were about to be enriched in all wisdom, and in all knowledge, and in all utterance manifestly receiving the knowledge of the mystery concerning him, undefiled and unclouded by blot or shadow. For this is what is meant by the words, from the top to the bottom. We say, then, that the most appropriate and fitting time for the revelation of the divine mysteries was the occasion on which the Saviour laid down his life for us when Israel spurned his grace, and wholly started aside from the love of God, in his frenzy against him, and headstrong impiety. For any one may see that the measure of their iniquities was complete, when he learns that they persecuted, even unto death, the giver of life. I think, therefore, that we have said enough on this subject, and that our explanation of the divine purpose does not fall short of the mark. But, as we find the inspired evangelist is very diligent to say, when he gave up the ghost, the veil of the temple was rent, thereby almost signifying as essential for us to know the occasion of that event, let us supplement our remarks by a further consideration, which savors, I think, of the spirit of pious research. For it is a thought which will be found in no way abhorrent to those fundamental doctrines, which are at once a blessing and a necessity to us. To proceed, then, the following custom was in vogue, both among the people and the rulers of the Jews. When they saw anything being done which they thought would especially offend the giver of the law, or when they heard any outrageous or blasphemous utterance, they tore their garments, and put on the appearance of mourners, thereby in a manner taking up the defense of God, and by the intolerance they displayed of such offenses, passing sentence of condemnation on the madness of the transgressors, and acquitting themselves of complicity therein. Moreover, the disciples of the Saviour, Barnabas and Paul, when certain of those who had not yet received the faith, thinking them to be gods, for they called Barnabas Jupiter, and Paul Mercury, brought sacrifices and garlands, in company with the priest, and attempted to make sacrifices in their honour, leapt down from the platform on which they stood because of the outrage that would be inflicted upon the glory of God if any sacrifice were offered to men, and rent their garments, as is recorded, and by fitting words prevented the ignorant endeavor of the worshippers of idols. Also, when our Saviour Christ was on his trial before the rulers of the Jews, and was required to say who he was, and whence he came, and said plainly in reply, 
Verily I say unto you, Henceforth ye shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas leapt up out of his seat, and rent his garments, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. The temple of God then followed, so to say, the custom that prevailed among the Jews, and rent its veil, as it had been clothes, at the moment when our Saviour gave up the ghost. For it condemned the impiety of the Jews as an insult against itself. And the accomplishment of this was God's work, that he might show unto us the temple itself bewailing Israel's guilt. 31. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain on the cross upon the Sabbath, for the day of that Sabbath was a high day, asked of Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. It is not with the motive of testifying to the reverence for holy days felt by men inured to shed blood with brutal ferocity, and found guilty of so monstrous an iniquity, that the blessed evangelist says this, but rather from the wish to show that, in their gross stupidity, they committed that folly of which Christ spoke, for they strained out the gnat while they swallowed the camel. For they are found to reckon as of no account at all the most outrageous and awful of all crimes against God, while they exercised the greatest diligence with reference to the most paltry and insignificant matters, showing their folly in either case. The proof of this is not far to seek. For, behold, in the very act of putting Christ to death, they put great store on the respect due to the Sabbath. And while they insulted the lawgiver by outrages which surpassed description, they parade their reverence of the law. And as that Sabbath was a high day, they affect to pay honor to it. The very men who destroyed the Lord of the high day. And they ask a favor which well suited their cruel spirit, for they besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, wishing to embitter, by this last intolerable outrage, the pangs of approaching death to those who were already in agony. 32-37 the soldiers therefore came, and brake the legs of the first, and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. Howbeit one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and straightway there came out blood and water. And he that hath seen hath borne witness, and his witness is true and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye also may believe. For these things came to pass, that the scripture might be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. In pursuance of the request of the Jews, men afflicted with a madness akin to their cruelty, I mean the soldiers of Pilate, break the legs of the two robbers, as they were still numbered among the living, intensifying the bitter pang of their last agony, and finally dispatching them by the most grievous act of violence. But when they found Jesus with his head bowed down, 
and saw that he had already given up the ghost, they thought it lost labor to break his legs. But, as they still had a faint suspicion that he might not be actually dead, they with a spear pierced his side, which sent forth blood mingled with water. God presenting us thereby with a type, as it were, and foreshadowing the mystery of the Eucharist and holy baptism. For holy baptism is of Christ, and Christ's institution. And the power of the mystery of the Eucharist grew up for us out of his holy flesh. By his account of what took place, the wise evangelist confirms his hearers in the belief that he was the Christ long ago foretold by holy writ, for the events of his life harmonized with what was written concerning him, for not a bone of him was broken, and he was pierced with the spear of the soldier, according to the scripture. He says himself that the disciple that bare record of these things was a spectator and eyewitness of what took place, and knew, in fact, that his testimony was true. And the disciple to whom he thus alludes is none other than himself, for he shrank from speaking more openly, putting away from himself the assumption of love of glory, as an unholy thing, and as a grievous infirmity. Concerning the Request for the Body of the Lord 38. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked of Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took away his body. This saying is indeed fraught with a grievous charge against the Jews, as it shows that to become a disciple of Christ was dangerous, and exposed a man to penalties. For he plainly introduces this most excellent young man, I mean Joseph, to our notice, as most especially anxious to escape the notice of the Jews, though he had been induced by Christ's teaching to choose that worship which was the reality itself and better and more pleasing to God, who loves virtue, than the commandment of the law, and at the same time gives us a proof necessary to confirm our faith. For it was necessary for us to believe that Christ laid down his life for us. And is it not an inevitable consequence that, when a man is entombed, we must have a firm conviction that he also died? and we may well condemn, as guilty of gross brutality, the presumption, hard-heartedness, and merciless temper of the Jews, who did not even pay unto Christ the respect due to the dead, nor honor him with burial rites, when they saw him lying before them an inanimate corpse, though they knew that he was the Christ, and had often been amazed by the marvelous works that he did, even though their bitter hatred might never have allowed them to profit by his miraculous power. The disciple of Arimathea, therefore, passes judgment on the inhumanity of the Jews, and condemns the men of Jerusalem when he goes and tends with fitting care the body of him whom he did not as yet honor by an open confession of faith, but still believed on him in secret, for fear of the Jews, as says the blessed evangelist. 39. 
And there came also Nicodemus, he who at the first came to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. He says that this disciple was not alone in taking counsel wisely, as well as in fervent zeal, to go to dress the sacred body for burial, but he makes mention of a second along with the first. This was Nicodemus, who completed the body of testimony to the event that is respected by the law. For, says the law, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. The men who laid Jesus in the tomb were two in number, Joseph and Nicodemus, men who received the faith inwardly in their hearts, but were still scared by a foolish fear, and did not yet prefer to the honor and glory of the world that which is of God. For then they would have dismissed all fear of the Jews, and, paying slight heed to any danger from that quarter, would have indulged their faith fearlessly and freely, and thus have proved themselves holy and good keepers of the commandment of our Saviour. 40.41 So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, wherein was never man yet laid. Christ was numbered among the dead, who for our sake became dead, according to the flesh, but whom we conceive to be, and who is, in fact, life of himself, and through his Father. And that he might fulfill all righteousness, that is, all that was appropriate to the form of man, he of his own will subjected the temple of his body, not merely to death, but also to what follows after death, that is, burial and being laid in the tomb. The writer of the gospel says that this sepulchre in the garden was a new one, this fact signifying to us, as it were, by a type and figure, that Christ's death is the harbinger and pioneer of our entry into paradise. For he entered as a forerunner for us. What other signification than this can be intended by the carrying over of the body of Jesus in the garden? And by the newness of the sepulchre is meant the untrodden and strange pathway whereby we return from death unto life, and the renewing of our souls, that Christ has invented for us, whereby we baffle corruption. For henceforth, by the death of Christ, death for us has been transformed in a manner into sleep, with like power and functions. For we are alive unto God, and shall live for evermore, to the Scriptures. Therefore also the blessed Paul, in a variety of places, calls those asleep who have died in Christ. For in the times of old the dread presence of death held human nature in awe. For death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the likeness of Adam's transgression. And we bore the image of the earthly in his likeness, and underwent the death that was inflicted by the divine curse. But when the second Adam appeared among us, the divine man from heaven, and contending for the salvation of the world, purchased by his death the life of all men, 
and, destroying the power of corruption, rose again to life, we were transformed into his image, and undergo, as it were, a different kind of death, that does not dissolve us in eternal corruption, but casts upon us a slumber which is laden with fair hope, after the likeness of him who has made this new path for us, that is, Christ. And if any one choose to give an additional meaning to the saying that the sepulchre was a new one, and that no man had been laid therein, be it so. He says, then, we may suppose that the sepulchre was new, and that no one had been ever laid therein, that no one might be thought to have arisen from the sleep of death, save Jesus only. 42. There, then, because of the Jews' preparation, for the tomb was nigh at hand, they laid Jesus. He not only says plainly that Christ's body was dressed for burial, and that there was a garden nigh unto the cross, and that there was a new sepulchre in it, but he also explains that he was laid therein, not leaving the least of the things which were done untold. For most essential truly to any creed or system of the mystery of our faith is the confession and the knowledge that Christ died. Therefore also the wise Paul, defining our rule of faith, speaks as follows. The word is nigh thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith, which we preach, because if thou shalt say with thy mouth, Jesus is Lord, and shalt believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And in another passage also, For I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he hath been raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Very essential, then, for us is the narrative which the writer of the book gives us on these points. For it was our bounden duty to believe that he died, and was buried. After that will easily follow the true belief, that he burst asunder the bonds of death, and returned as God to the life that was his own. For it was not possible that he should be holden of death. For, being by nature life, how could he have undergone corruption? And how could he in whom we live, and move, and have our being, have been subjected to the laws which our human nature is subject? Could he not rather, as God, have easily quickened that which lacked life? End of Introduction, Part 5